Hello and welcome to another episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. Tonight I'm lucky enough to be joined by author Laura Lamb, who is the creator of uh, the Micah Gray series of books, uh, and she also wrote False Hearts and A Shattered Minds, which will be released later this year. Um, so over to Laura, uh, would you be able to introduce yourself um, and tell us a little about your work? Uh, hello, I am Laura, and I'm originally from California, but I have moved to Scotland and now live in Edinburgh. And yes, I wrote the Mike Gray trilogy, which has just finished. It came out officially on the 9th, and I've also written False Hearts and Shattered Minds, and I've just had my first nonfiction released in the feminist essay collection Nasty Women. Uh, I suppose my work integrates themes of identity and gender and sexuality and um, recently things like futurism and transhumanism as well. I thought we'd begin with um, with genre, because it's a favourite topic of ours that we like to discuss at Breaking the Glass Slipper. Um, and the other day, Megan uh, found me this amazing quote by Emily Andrus, uh, and she said that she thinks that genre is paving the way. Uh, it's ultimately about outsiders trying to make a sense uh, of a strange often hostile world uh, and if that doesn't speak to the queer experience then what does um so i would i was thinking that we'd start uh you know with this quote um and and talk about kind of what genre means to you what can genre accomplish basically that mainstream fiction can't accomplish uh well i think uh i teach part-time on the creative writing masters at Napier University, and we have a whole um, module on genre, which we're teaching now, me and my colleague David Bishop. And so to paraphrase one of the lectures we do in our master's class, uh, science fiction is an explained departure from reality, and fantasy tends to be an unexplained departure from reality. So that's obviously gross simplification, uh, but it's it can be a useful starting point. So an explained departure would be, oh, there is science behind it, and unexplained would be, oh, it's magic. Uh, and by given that distance from reality, that means you can deconstruct or investigate things. You have that distance of a lens or a mirror. So you can create this whole new world or, um, you know, a distorted echo of our world to work out your anxieties or obsessions on our real one. Leading on from that, um, Andra suggests that genre is the perfect arena to discuss the queer experience, which is a big part of the Micah Gray trilogy. Uh, do you agree? Uh, yeah, I do think it can be. So by creating a new world, you have uh, the power to change attitudes. So um, within the world or as a result of kind of making it, defamiliarizing it a little bit. So, for instance, in Micah Gray, there's the same repressive attitudes that existed in the Victorian times. Um, which means that things are quite repressed and buttoned up and Micah doesn't really have space to investigate his gender and can't really land in the middle like he'd prefer. So he ends up being raised as a, as the daughter of a noble family and kind of forced into this world of corsets and crinolines and debutante balls. Um, and then runs away and joins the circus and presents male and very much has to change, uh, his whole presentation. Whereas, for instance, I write near future thrillers set in our world rather than a secondary world. And in uh, the futuristic version of San Francisco, being queer is incredibly accepted and open. So it gives me the freedom to write lots of queer characters having their own adventures, but free from those same constraints. So 
uh, I can focus more on the characters happening to be queer rather than focusing as much on um, them as identity. It's more narrative versus identity, I suppose. Considering you've written, you know, in kind of a science fiction dystopian kind of world and a fantasy world, um, which one do you find easier? Which one calls to you more? I I like them both in different ways. They offer different challenges and freedoms. So I grew up mostly reading fantasy and I consumed massive amounts of uh, fantasy, whereas I came to science fiction a lot later. And I still don't think I read quite as much science fiction as I do fantasy. But I like, um, they're both puzzles that you can solve in different ways. So I like, in fantasy, I tend to go more grand scale, I suppose, and make up new political systems and religions and magic systems and kind of create that sense of awe. Whereas with uh, my science fiction, I tend to get more, more gritty and dark and dystopian. So I look at a lot of futurist blogs and headlines and kind of extrapolate how things can either get a bit better or go incredibly wrong. Um, and in my science fiction, I quite like to create... Oh, that's my cat crying in the background. <laughs> Thanks, Mowgli. Uh, hey, cat. What was I saying? Hi, cat. <laughs> uh, so I, um, I, I quite like to write uh, utopias where when you scratch the surface, the dystopia is revealed, because I think that's quite interesting. Whereas um, I think the fantasy is maybe a little more overtly dystopia i suppose like it's pretty clear that the monarchy and micah gray is having its issues and it's a pretty clear allegory to um inequality of wealth now and things like that so i kind of take those same anxieties um but in different ways depending on if i'm doing a fantasy or science fiction approach well i mean we've just touched on this briefly but uh I've and I've always thought this is a completely strange thing, but I mean, considering the boundary-pushing nature of science fiction and fantasy um, as a genre, why do you think it's taken so long for you know LGBTQ fiction to find a place in publishing? I honestly don't know. It does seem very strange that we spend all this effort creating fantastic new worlds, but then populate them with a lot of the same attitudes to particularly gender and sexuality. Um, So to be honest, from my point of view, I haven't had any problem publishing LGBTQ fiction. Uh, I've had two publishers now, and both of them were pretty supportive of it overall. So I think certain publishers fear that adding LGBTQ characters makes it more niche. If I had a quarter for every time someone called the Micah Gray series niche, I'd probably have earned out my advance. (laughs) Um, But I think, uh, so it's also maybe a bit of fear from the publisher side and also from those writing, fearing that it's niche, so then they don't create and submit. So that's creating this sort of feedback loop of publishers not getting queer fiction and therefore queer fiction not being published because publishers are afraid it won't sell. But I do think that that's changing and breaking down now because we're having a lot more science fiction and fantasy over the last Particularly, I'd say last over the last five years, it's changed a lot. So we had ancillary justice, which had you know the default she pronouns throughout, um, which mean meant you could read any relationship as queer or straight, depending, because you weren't really sure what anyone's physical sex was. And I found that really freeing and interesting. And so I'm hoping that more uh, sci-fi and fantasy will play with that because you know we really do have all these options, and gender is a binary and it's you know false binary as well so there's no real reason you can't challenge it 
and include the full spectrum of LGBTQ people in the future. Well, I'm um, about four chapters into Masquerade, which is awesome. (laughs) I know I had to go back and um, reread uh, Shadowplay because um, I read it over two years ago or a year and a half ago. I did do my oh-so-convenient prologue where Anisa the Damselfly basically summarizes what happened in the first two books. I know, and I I didn't realise that was going to happen. And I was like, I just read the whole book. Yeah, I did that just in case. It was the last thing I wrote, actually. Um, My editor was like, maybe you could add a little summary. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll do that from Anisa's point of view. That'll be fun. And then I had some reviews be like, oh, that's a bit info dumpy. And I was like, that's the point of it. You can skip the prologue if you've recently reread the last two. It's fine. Getting back to (laughs) Masquerade um, and and Micah. for me, I, I wouldn't say that it's niche, but I, maybe that's just because that's how I've read it. it it's so... Micah's a character. I, the, the whole trans thing is not, like, in your face at all, because I just see Micah as Micah. You know... That's, it, that's my hope. I mean, I don't... I think his being intersex and changing gender pre- presentation is a vital part of who he is and it has shaped his worldview and his place in society and everything. But at the end of the day, he is still a person like anyone else with hopes and dreams and fears. And like my whole series is basically like defamiliar or like making the other not other, I suppose is kind of my overarching purpose. So um, yeah, I I don't particularly find it niche either, but who knows? (laughs) Could you give us some background about uh, Micah? I mean, how did you come up with um, his character? So uh, I came up with Micah Gray in 2007, I think. So about 10 years ago now. And um, it came about, I was talking to my husband on the phone when we were still living half a world apart. And I was saying, oh, I really want to write like a mystery and like a private detective. But I don't know what gender to make my main character. And he did say, like, why not both? And I was like, oh, huh. And I thought about it for a bit, and then I started researching, um, and I found um, lots about intersex literature and started really researching it and getting quite passionate about intersex rights and how, um, you know, lots of babies are operated upon without having proper choice because obviously a baby doesn't isn't able to articulate its gender identity. And I got really passionate about it, but I was still a bit afraid to write about Micah since I myself am not intersex or trans. So I did research for about over six months, close to a year, and then I started writing most of a book with Micah as a private detective, and I have 80,000 words of that on my hard drive, which no one will ever see because it's not very good. Um, And then I decided, once I moved from California to Scotland, to write a quote-unquote short story about Micah joining the circus as a teen, and then I got a bit carried away. Um, And the whole idea is... the history because you have such a rich history in those books as well i mean it's yeah and it plays such an important part yeah so writing those first 80k was basically an exercise in world building because it meant when i started over with the character 10 years younger i kind of had every a lot more in place than i would have otherwise perhaps so it maybe wasn't the most efficient way to world build but got there in the end but it's a natural way i i I've always been a big fan of just, you know, actually starting with character and just seeing where, you know, where it takes you. Um, and, yeah. and, and the character has to learn about the world along the way as as well as you do. So yeah. uh, it's quite an organic process. 
Um, so why do you, I mean, I suppose we've touched on this already, but why do you feel it's important to tell Micah's story? Um, well, specifically with Micah, I was thinking about how the fact when I grew up, I really, really loved reading stories about girls who dressed up as boys to prove that they could do anything the boys could do and smash the patriarchy, essentially. Um, and I loved them. But I really, when I started thinking about the fact that I would write a gender fluid intersex character, I wanted to investigate the notion, well, what if that disguise wasn't one? And so I think it's, again, important to challenge the gender binary because it is false and gender is a spectrum. Sexuality is a spectrum. The human experience is full of intersections. So, you know, I'm I identify as female and not trans, but that doesn't mean I necessarily fall into all of the constraints that society puts on me as a result of those gendered roles and expectations. Um, And I feel lots of other women and men and those in in between that binary same and I think it's really important to see all types of people in fiction I've read so many straight white men in fiction growing up and I just I don't really have much interest in writing about them I'm afraid there's enough there are other stories to tell Mm -hmm. and there's always going to be straight white men always yeah there's plenty yeah um we literally they don't need my help Nope. Sorry. No, no, it's totally true. Um, You're you're talking to someone who actually changed her protagonist from a straight white guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. remember telling me that, and I was like, yes, good call. Yeah. But yeah, we we were just you just mentioned this actually about society and the fact that actually you know it's set in a in a kind of or you not necessarily set but it's you've taken drawn on Victorian notions of um, gender and and you know the restrictions that come with that. Um, I mean, how representative is this of real life? I mean, I was thinking that if if Michael lived in in the UK in 2017, would he still struggle uh, to find a place in our society? I mean, I'd like to think that things would be easier for Micah in 2017 in the UK, but I don't really know since I'm not trans. I don't exactly know what it's like to live um, that experience. But I mean, it's still difficult to be trans. I mean, you look at the ridiculous bathroom controversy in the state or the fact that lots of trans women of color specifically are being murdered um, and no one's really doing anything about it. And we're still having that are trans women really women debate in certain circles, um, including certain circles of feminism, as if that sort of discussion is not literally dehumanizing. So, I mean, I'm bi and I have an easy time of that in society, but I'm also married to a man, so I'm not obligated to out myself in a way that other queer people might be. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I think Micah would have a slightly easier time, but maybe not necessarily. And that's a shame we still have a long way to go i know and it is a shame considering that we're living in 2017 and i you know every time i read it not a story about um you know it's just so, so any any kind of violence at all um against trans people it's just horrible that this is still happening um which is why i think it's so important that people like you were writing fiction i know that maybe um the ya genre is is much better um, than maybe you know the more traditional genres of kind of fantasy and science fiction for actually you know addressing this and actually you know bringing a full spectrum of um, sexuality and gender representation like into fiction. Yeah, I think so because like we need diverse books started after I was already querying pantomime or I think after it even sold like I, 
the initiative launched and I was like, oh, yes, finally, that's great. And that's, you know, focused on why. And then the issues of, um, you know, doing your research sensitively, I think the forefront of that is more in young adult fiction than adult. Um, I mean, you still have lots of dust ups and difficulties and, um, you know, issues that crop up in discussion of representation in YA, but I do think YA is actually leading that discussion. Um, and it's really important because obviously like, a, you know, if, if you write a poor representation of an adult character in adult fiction, that's bad. But I think it's different if you're writing a poor representation of a teen character who's going to be read by a teen who is still figuring out their own identity in a way that an adult isn't. So, yeah, I do think, you know, in most dystopias, it's teen girls saving the world. So <laughs> I think that spirals out into other issues of society as well. Teen girls are leading the way. I think it's a YA thing in general, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I've often noticed actually just recently that the YA genre is is a lot more boundary pushing than mm-hmm. than adult stuff. I mean, and yeah. I, this is quite. Well, I, I get very frustrated when people are patronising about YA for that reason. <laughs> So frustrated. <laughs> I know. I know. I, th- I mean, it gets bad rep, I suppose, because so ma- there are so many chosen one dystopias kind of being written at the moment. But I think a lot of the other, you know, well, I'm not saying that any of that. I, I quite enjoyed reading Victoria Aviard and Red Queen and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it's the stereotype. We've, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, um, saying that, you know, it's stereotypes that people, um, you know, have to be wary of and that we fall into. And that's why I really like, you, you know, your series, because it, it, it's actually sidesteps very neatly around so many stereotypes that dog YA and I think that's I mean I don't know if you notice that in your writing that it's you know how if you have to consciously when you consciously encounter a stereotype do you realize that it's there and because it happens to me a lot you know I realize I've written something and go oh my god this is you know an inherited stereotype that I must have um, imbibed from just reading so much uh, of the same kind of fiction over you know the last 15 years. Yeah, I think so sometimes. I can't really think of a specific example at the moment, but yeah. I'm, they I just think creep I am, in though, don't they? Yeah, especially gender. I'm conscious of the fact that like, yeah, I like to do, to, oh, oh, I, I actually remember, remember one because in, um, in False Hearts, I initially had uh, a character who's going to help my character change her uh, identity chip in her wrist to go undercover. And initially, when I first saw up this doctor, I made him a dude and I made him white and I made him kind of like the character in Fire or in Serenity who um, helps them, who does tech stuff. And then I realized that that was not very exciting. Like the character was really flat and I hadn't really populated him properly. So I gender flipped him and made him a 40-year-old half-Japanese lesbian who likes to collect troll dolls from the 20th century. And she immediately became a lot more interesting. Like, just as so you the, said that, is immediately more interesting. <laughs> yeah, like, you have a, a much clearer idea of what she's like now, and she's actually the only character who's going to appear in all of my thrillers now because I like excuses to bring Kim back in. So she shows up a bit in Shattered Minds, and I've got some other Pacifica thriller ideas, and I would put her in there too. Um, talking about uh, going back to Micah because I really what I really love um, so much about the setting uh, is this um, is the circus and and the the art of performance magic uh, is so exciting um, I mean why why did you decide I mean you could have chosen 
that whole kind of um you know you know idea of setting loads and loads of different kinds of ideas but but magic and 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 the theater um it comes with its own kind of identity um so why did i uh, yeah i mean what draws is it related? you to that um, I'd like to say I was deliberately linking theatrical performance to gender performativity, but it was not at all conscious. It was something I realized after. And I was like, oh, look, past me was unintentionally clever. Go me. I love it when um, that happens. <laughs> but yeah, I think I was drawn to the fact that the circus is usually a collection of outsiders. Um, so, you know, freaks, quote unquote, could make a living back in the Victorian times um, there in a way they couldn't in other aspect of society um, but freak show tents could also be pretty horrible places as well um, so and stage magic which is what happens in shadow play and then the third book is kind of more court magic without going into spoilers it's all about misdirection and illusion and I suppose that ties in quite clearly to the themes where Mike is trying to decide what is a disguise what is misdirection what is a mask what is not and one of the questions of the trilogy is you know will he these disguises and these masks and show his true identity so it it happened sort of subconsciously i didn't set out and consciously map it out but it ended up tying together quite neatly so hooray past me did you i mean i was obviously i should say i was rereading um shadow play and uh, some of the tricks are really quite um explaining quite a lot of detail did you have to do research for that i did so much research mostly because <laughs> really I shows really love stage magic so um the best one that i read was hiding the elephant by i think it's jim steinmeier or something like that where he actually would map out various tricks like the um pepper's ghost which is the reflection you'll get if you've gone to like the disney haunted house um, thing where you see the transparent ghosts. So he, he talked about how you'd angle the mirrors to do that and how you would, um, do lots of different things. Like the, um, the finale of Shadow Play has this big, um, trick of a disappearing woman. And I got how to do all that from, uh, hiding the elephant because basically it's how you would hide an elephant as well, um, in, and have such a big thing disappear when it, you, think it would be right in front of your eyes so um yeah I, I researched a lot i tried to learn how to do card tricks because i thought that would be like a cool marketing technique at cons to be like oh look here's a card trick but i i sucked at all of it so <laughs> there are no card tricks that i can do sadly but i theoretically know how to do a lot of card tricks and illusions um but i don't think i'm very good at directing except perhaps in fiction I just wanted to ask you quickly, just actually on a personal note, because I think his character is so great. Um, about is it Driston or Dryston? I don't know how I you say Driston, but I've heard both ways. I, I, I really say Driston. This is good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't really. Uh, it, I have a lot. Of, I a lot of people ask how to pronounce names, like uh, in False Hearts, Tama and Tyla is how I say it. But I've heard, but the audiobook actually says Taima and Tilla. So I was like, oh. Oh, well. <laughs> but yeah, Tristan, um, he's such an important character, um, really, because he supports, he's so supportive. I mean, as far as I am, you know, up to, you know, back this, this fourth chapter into Masquerade, um, he's really supportive of Micah. Um, he's very hot, obviously. Uh, and of course. he's a really great character. I don't know. Uh, did you have fun writing him? 
Uh, Driston is one of my favorite characters I've ever written, ever. Um, so it's no surprise that I wrote the Vestigial Tales in kind of the gap when I was trying to figure out what was happening between book two and book three in the series because publishing went a bit pear-shaped. Uh, so I wrote two novellas from Driston's point of view uh, set before pantomime starts and yeah he's fun he's like a much wittier cooler version of myself when i've like had time to think up witty comebacks um and i think he's quite an interesting character in that he has had a rough time of it before the story starts so he'd done a lot of work on himself and kind of gotten beyond a lot of issues in his past but they still kind of come back to haunt him and you know beneath all the light-hearted jesting he's got some very real pain underneath um, and I do like my poor angsty characters. So, he, yeah, he was really fun to write, and I'm going to miss him. Actually, that brings me on to a perfect question. I mean, I'm coming to the end of my own trilogy. I mean, this trilogy must have been with you for, for many, many years. I mean, mm-hmm. what does it feel like to, to finally finish it and to move on? Uh, it's weird. It's like breathing a sigh of relief because there was a long time there where I wasn't sure if the third book would ever come out. Um, because for context, Pantomime and Shadowplay originally came out through Strange Chemistry, uh, which was an imprint of Anger Robot books, and they went um, bankrupt or closed in the middle of 2014. Uh, but before that, they'd rejected the third book of the trilogy anyway, and I was incredibly dispirited and thought my career was over. Um, and then... In happy turn of events, Pan McMillan ended up buying False Hearts and, Shatter- and Shattered Minds and then ended up buying the trilogy. So um, there were a lot of there's been a lot of tears over this trilogy. It's been really uncertain and really difficult. And I had to rewrite Masquerade a few times because I'd written it in fits and starts because I didn't know if anyone wanted this book or if I was going to have to self-publish it or what the hell was going to go on. And it was really hard to keep the motivation and alive sometimes um but i kept going because i kept getting really good lovely messages from readers and i did know that i loved the series and the books so i pushed through and i fought really hard and so i think masquerade is in a way the hardest book i've written but the one that i'm also really proud of so yeah it's lots of emotions i'm happy that it's finished i'm a little sad that it's finished because i am going to miss these characters and no character like these characters have been in my head the longest and like Micah his internal register and voice is very similar to my own in a way that none of my other characters are so yeah I'm gonna miss them but I'm happy that their story ends where it does at least for now who knows maybe I'll pull a Robin Hobb and bring them out again in 10 years (laughs) (laughs) so always a possibility (laughs) yeah you never know (laughs) um so What's next for you? I mean, um, you've obviously got, uh, you know, another book. I don't know. Is, is the, the um, paperback of False Hearts out this year too? Yeah. <laughs> 2017 is a very bizarre, weird, uh, weird year. So the first half has lots of book releases. Uh, so I had Pantomime and Shadowplay at the tail end of 2016 in the reissue. And then Masquerade just came out a few days ago. The False Hearts paperback is April 20th yeah april 20th and then june 16th is shattered minds um and then i had nasty woman as well but then after june that's it like i'm out of contract i don't have any other books under contract so then it's like the holding your breath point in publishing so i have two projects on the go i'd like to sell this year but i 
can't quite send them out yet, and I have no idea what will happen. So it's kind of like back to not back to square one, but it's like oh yes, back to back to pitching and hoping and waiting again. Are they along the same lines of um, pantomime, or are they closer to the kind of false hearts? They're closer to false hearts. So I'm hoping. Um, to do some more near-future thrillers, and me and my friend and fellow YA author Elizabeth May have co-written a series, or we've co-written a first draft of a series, and we're currently editing that to be readable, <laughs> because at the moment it's a bit rough. That's so interesting, because I always wonder about co-writing. I mean, how does it work? Do you write a chapter each, or do you write chapters together? Or? Uh, we started out writing chapters together, and then that soon became apparent that that was not going to work long term. Like, it was fine in the beginning because we were kind of setting things up. So then we sort of divided and conquered. Um, but that means that we're kind of contradicting each other in certain ways, and there's places where the character is abruptly shifting um, and not quite flowing correctly, and we've got a few patches. So it's it's a skeleton of a draft. Um, that has a lot of promise, but it also has a lot of wounds out of alignment. And so at the moment, we're now setting everything in place and re-outlining and rereading through it. And I'm really excited for edits because I think edits is when the book is really going to come to life because we now know so much more about the world from writing this very rough first draft. Cool. Well, I have to say, I've never even... I thought about collaborating before it seems like it throws up its own kind of um, challenges it, yeah. it does but I think we complement each other pretty well like she's really good at dialogue whereas I'm better at description um, that's interesting yeah. so we can kind of like when we re-edit I will beef up her description and she'll make my dialogue better and she she's an anthropologist so she's able to come through that sort of lens through things like creating religion and whatnot, whereas I uh, come with a different approach to craft because now I'm deconstructing craft at a master's level. So, yeah, it works. It ends up working pretty well. So we'll see what happens. Who knows? I'll have to look out for it in the future. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Hopefully. Who knows? <laughs> Your uh, last question. I've just um, you just mentioned it. You're now an academic, um, and, and <laughs> which is very exciting. And um, how are you finding that that role, teaching others? Uh, I love it. Um, I started last August, and I'm part time, so that means I can actually still balance the writing and the teaching. Because I, I'm sure if I taught full time, it would just be incredibly hard to write as well, because it is really full on. And it's very emotional as well. There, there are frequent tears on both sides of the classroom, I think, teacher side and student side, because it's it's very difficult to really academically and rigorously look at your craft on a master's level um, and to be, you know, you're, you're really passionate about writing um, and it's just a completely different space. But it's really interesting because we're a incredibly genre friendly, commercially focused masters, which is very rare. That is very rare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like we are developing a YA exclusive module that I'm going to teach next year, which is really exciting. And uh, we have a whole genre on mod uh, module on genre. We do um, a whole module on creating narrative, which is pre-writing techniques and planning which has been really interesting to kind of deconstruct, okay, how do I actually plan and plot a novel? How do I world build? How do I like synthesize what I do 
in a way that my students can also do and learn from. And um, yeah, it's a, you know, we use various theories and we have a whole um, module on innovation and what new things are you bringing to the genre and what are you subverting and deconstructing? We've got another one on authorship, which we're doing now, which is like the notion of literary citizenship and what do you do outside of just writing books? What are you giving back to your community? What skills are you imparting? What legacy are you leaving? Um, and we have professional development tracks as part of that, like teaching and community engagement and digital publishing and uh, diversity in publishing. Um, and it's really exciting to because the students bring so much to it and you can kind of give them some stuff. But it's it's a lot about them meeting you halfway. And it's really exciting to see them go from kind of having the bare beginnings of an idea to getting uh, close to you know, at least the first 20K of a manuscript, which they submit for major project, and to be able to help them on that journey and give them mentoring and um, help them flourish is just, a, it's a really big responsibility, but I feel really honored and I really love doing it. And do you find that it helps you as well, or maybe in your own writing? I definitely feel like my uh, grasp on craft has improved a lot. Uh, like, for instance, we have a whole module in first person um first-person narration, and we have this idea of what is condition of narration. So, for instance, uh, if it's first-person, it's a character is the author as well because they are telling you the story. And one aspect is, okay, how is this reaching you? Why are you writing this book? So if it's a first-person present narrative, it's kind of hard to answer, okay, how is this reaching me if it's in present tense? Um, why is it being written in present tense? And it makes me realize that technically two-thirds of false hearts does not answer that question. And I was a bit like, oh, oops. Um, so little things like that is quite funny because now if I wrote false hearts, I would think about, okay, I'd have to give some reason to think of why is this being told in present tense and what, how is this reaching the reader in a way that I wouldn't have thought about it in, you know, six months, eight months ago. I know it's really amazing how um, just analysing a text can, you know, it just opens up a whole um, whole new avenues and avenues of exploration. Yeah. So, like, I feel like I'm going to try new things in manuscripts in the future that I wouldn't have tried before because I'm learning new techniques and skills and just kind of deconstructing stories in a way I hadn't been before. Thank you very much, Laura, for coming to talk to everyone on Breaking the Glass Slipper. Thank you for having me.